Well, it is good to be with you guys today. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 25, verse 17. Um, Exodus 25, verse 17. We're continuing through together the book of Exodus. We're almost done with it. And we're in our Advent series. And kind of put your thumb there in the Bible, and then we're going to get to it in just a second. But one of the things I want to talk about before we jump into the text, give a little introduction here, is that you know, one of, the, one of the common misconceptions that I hear a lot about when I'm talking to people about God, um, and these are not necessarily folks in the church but that have been in church for a long time, but maybe folks that are new to church or new to the study of the scripture, one of the misconceptions that they have about the Lord is this, is that in the Old Testament, God was a God of wrath. That he, he's kind of this Old Testament God, he's mad all the time, and that he's a God of wrath. And then in the New Testament, he's somehow changed, or he's different. In the New Testament, he's a God of mercy and he's a God of grace. And I say that that's a misconception for this reason because the scripture is clear that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God that you see pouring out his mercy on us is the same God you see in the Old Testament that is laying the foundation for him to be able to pour out his mercy on us. And that is exactly what we're gonna see today in Exodus chapter 25, verse 17. And what God is doing here is that God is giving, and, and if you were here last week, Colin kind of jumped into this, but God is giving Moses instructions on how to be, build uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness where he wants to meet with the people. And, and he's given uh, instructions today. We're gonna see he's given instructions specifically on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you may have heard that before, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is basically a box. It's a box, and it's inside the most holy place of the tabernacle, which was called the Holy of Holies. <clears throat> now, God gets really specific about how he wants this ark to be built because each one of the little parts of the ark of the covenant um, has a specific purpose and a specific meaning that God is trying to teach us and show us. And so um, instead of like going into the meaning of all the little pieces of the ark, which I think I might do next week, what I wanna do is I just wanna show you a picture of it today. And um, this is just an artist's rendering of, of based on the biblical description of what the Ark of the Covenant inside of the Holy of Holies might have looked like. Um, you had the cherubim. Uh, the, the Advent reading was about that. And, and I don't wanna go into all that, but I want you to notice the top of it. The top of it right there is the lid. It's the lid. <clears throat> and inside of that lid... And we're going to talk about the lid today, but inside of that lid were a few things. One, you had a jar of manna, which was uh, gathered from the wilderness, and I'll talk about that next week. You had Aaron's staff or, or his rod, and I'll talk about that next week. And also, inside of the ark here, inside of the box, <laughs> underneath the lid, you had the Ten Commandments, or the actual tablets that God gave to Moses. That's where they kept those things inside of there. Now, here, I want you to hear this. Don't miss this. What that represented, the Ten Commandments inside of the ark. Now remember, this is the most holy place in the tabernacle. This is the, the, the kind of the center piece of, of the worship of God inside the tabernacle. And you got the Ten Commandments inside the box. And what that represented was God's holiness. God's holiness. His perfection. The fact that he is utterly pure. That's what um, God was trying to show the people and symbolize to the people by putting the commandments in the box. It's a picture of his law. It's the standard of his holiness, and that's what that shows. <clears throat> now, the other thing that we know about the ark is this, <clears throat> and Harlan mentioned this last week, and this is key. Hear this. 
is that the ark was a representation of the full glory and the full presence of Almighty God. It was a representation of the full glory, <coughs> excuse me, in the presence of God. Now we know that God is everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent, but here in the tabernacle, God was manifesting his presence, his presence in such a way where he wasn't just figuratively dwelling among his people, but what he was literally doing is he was literally dwelling among his people in the Holy of Holies, okay? So you walk inside the veil, you walk into the Holy of Holies, you got a couple of things going on. One is you've got the literal, physical presence of Almighty God. And because you have the presence of Almighty God, you've got the fullness of his glory and you've got the fullness of his holiness. And so that's, what ha- that's what's going on right here in the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, <clears throat> let's jump at the text and what are we gonna do today? Pretty short sermon. We're gonna talk about the mercy seat. We're gonna talk about the mercy seat, which is the lid at the top there. So let's read this together because what God is trying to teach us about the mercy seat has pretty profound implications on our lives and on our eternities. So read it together, Exodus chapter 25. We'll start in verse 16. And this is God speaking, he says, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. That's the lid, that's where the angels were on top of there. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, one cherub on the other end. Uh, Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces towards one another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And look at verse 21, he says, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and, you, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And so the last thing God says there, he said, take, take the commandments, which you put them in the ark, represent my holiness, we got my presence there, and then we're gonna take a lid, and we're gonna put that lid on top of the 10 commandments, and we're gonna call that thing the mercy lid. Literally, that's how it translates, the mercy lid. Now, here's a question I want to answer today, and that is, why does God call the lid on top of the ark, which is holding the Ten Commandments, why does God call that the mercy lid, all right? And I think there's three reasons why God calls it the mercy lid, and go through those three, and we're going to be done. But before I jump in the first one, I want to give you a quick definition of mercy. What's God saying? Why didn't he call it the grace lid? He calls it the mercy lid, now, mercy, very, very simple definition of mercy is this, is that when God does not give you something that you do deserve, that's mercy. When God does not give you something, or when somebody doesn't give you something you do deserve, that's when they're showing you mercy. For instance, if on the way home, you are speeding, you're going 45 and a 35, a police officer pulls you over for speeding, comes out, pulls out his ticket book, and gives you a warning. Right? He, you deserve, you were speeding. You deserve the ticket. You earned the ticket. But he gives you a warning. He's not giving you grace there. He's actually showing you mercy. So that's the definition of mercy. Now here is the first reason why God calls this seat or this lid on top of the ark the mercy lid. And here's the answer. 
Because if you and I, as humans, if we want to enter into God's presence, if we want to enter into God's presence, if we are to encounter his presence and his holiness, you and I must have a covering of his mercy for that to happen. We have to have mercy for that to happen. God has to not give us something that we do deserve if we want to enter into his presence and worship him. Now, why do I say that? Again, because God is completely pure. Think about, think about that for half a second. God is utterly and totally pure. He's holy. There is no part of him that is sinful whatsoever, and it's been that way for eternity. But as humans, we are not pure. As humans, we're defiled. As human beings, we are sinful, right? Now, here's the question. <clears throat> what happens when a sinful and defiled creature enters into the presence of a perfectly holy creator. What happens? Well, what happens when sinful creatures encounter the presence of a perfectly holy creator? Really, really bad things happen, okay? That's the answer. Um, <clears throat> without his mercy. Now, have you ever seen the, the movie uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? In the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you haven't seen it, um, I'm about to spoil it for you, but you've had like 37 years, all right? So I don't feel bad for you at all. I think it came out when I was nine or 10 years old. <clears throat> and the, the story of, of, of Raiders of the Lost Ark is the Nazis, I think before World War II decided that they wanted to find the Ark of the Covenant. And they were gonna use it as a weapon. I think that's what they were doing. And, um, and they find the Ark, right? And now I was, a, I think I was nine, I can't remember. I was thinking I was a 10-year-old kid and there was a scene in that movie that was scarier than any other scene in the movie. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Um, if you hadn't seen it, go home and watch it today. What happened was the Nazis got a hold of the ark, and those dudes, they took it up on some stage somewhere, and they decided they were going to take off the mercy lid off the Ark of the Covenant. All right? And they did that. At the end of the movie, you got the Nazis there. Those dudes removed the mercy lid from the Ark of the Covenant and then like God's presence kind of came out which is not biblically accurate because Jesus has come by the time we don't get hung up on that. Um, the, they take the lid off the, mer- off the Ark, they remove the mercy seat and you remember what happened to the Nazis? Their faces melted off, right? Y'all remember that? Their, their faces just melted instantly. True story, I'm not just saying this to be funny. True story, my cousin was a year older than me. He was like 11 years old. He was sitting right next to me. His dad, my uncle, was on the right. When the Nazis' faces melted off because they removed the mercy lid, true story, he had one of those little tubs of popcorn. Immediately, faces melted. He dumps popcorn on the ground, puts the tub on his head, and just sat there. It was just too much for him to see. And so <clears throat> that's actually a fairly biblical picture of what might happen when a sinful creature encounters a perfectly holy God. I think I talked about it a couple weeks ago. It's a famous story of Moses when he's talking to God. He's like, God, can I see your face? Like, we've been hanging out a long time. And and you've been been doing all this cool stuff for us. I'd kind of like to see you. Can I see your glory? Can I see your face? And God says, I can't show you my glory. I can't show you my face or, or what would happen. He said, or you will die. You'll die. Again, 
when us, humans, defiled, sinful, we can't just walk in and waltz into the presence of an almighty and holy God because the result will always be death. Okay, so God says, hey everybody, you're gonna build this ark, gonna be hanging out there, important safety tip for you. Put a lid on it. And we're gonna call that thing the mercy lid, right? Now, real quick before we go on, I wanna address kind of a question. And, And the question is this, is why does our sin cause us to die? Have you, ever, have you ever thought about that? Like, why does God care so much about our sin? Why is it that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God couldn't just say, okay, y'all didn't mean to do that, and just move on? Why is the result of our sin death? In Romans 6.23, it just it says the wages of sin is death or the result or the payment of our sin is death and that word death in the greek it doesn't mean like you just die it it actually in the greek means eternal death so why in the world is the result of us sinning our eternal death it seems kind of like at first glance a serious divine overreaction what's going on here now i'm going to give an example i've given a couple of times over the years I try to do it every couple of years. Um, And so if you've heard it before, let it be a reminder to you. But here's the thing, and listen carefully. The level of consequences of your sin is directly proportional to the authority of the person that's being sinned against. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. The level of consequence of your sin is directly proportional to the authority of the person that you've sinned against. And that is a statement that just about everybody in this room, if you think about it for a little while, would absolutely agree with. And we're gonna take a, we'll take a sin, we'll pick a sin. <clears throat> we'll pick the sin of betrayal or treason or lying. Um, and let's say that you betray a friend. You sin by betraying a friend. What are the consequences of you betraying your friend? They're not that big. They might get mad at you. They might decide y'all aren't gonna be friends anymore. But the consequences of that betrayal are not that big of a deal at the end of the day because that your friend, they don't really have that much authority in your life, okay? But let's take the same sin, the sin of betrayal, and let's let's say we commit it into, uh, into somebody's life that has a little bit higher authority. Let's say you betray your boss at work or you cheat on a test, you betray a trust to your professor, what would happen? Well, probably you get fired, or maybe you get expelled, or you get a zero on a test. It's the same exact sin. You betray a trust, but the authority is higher in your life, and so the the authority is higher, the consequences are higher. Let's take it a step farther. Let's say you betray or commit treason to a federal judge. Okay, you lie under oath. You betray a trust. Same exact sin, right? But what would happen to you if you betray a trust to a federal judge? You're gonna go to prison. Same exact sin, but because the authority of a federal judge is higher than a college professor, the consequences of the sin go up. Let's take it a step further. What happens if you betray or commit treason against the President of the United States during the time of war? What would happen? They don't just get mad at you. They don't expel you. Um, you don't lose your job, 
You may not go to jail, but you might die. You commit treason against the President of the United States, you betray a trust, go Benedict Arnold style, in a time of war, the consequences are not firing, they're not getting mad at you, the consequences are death. Why? It's the same sin. But because the authority of the person is higher, the consequences are higher. Listen again, I'll say it again. The level of consequence of your sin is directly proportional to the authority of the person sinned against, and it's something we all understand. And so here's the question. How big is the authority of God? How big is the authority of God? The authority of God is not big, guys. The authority of God is infinite. The the authority of God is not bigger than the President of the United States. The authority of Almighty God is infinitely bigger than the President of the United States. The President of the United States' authority is like a drop of water in the Pacific Ocean of the authority of the Creator of heaven and earth, the Alpha and the Omega. His authority is infinite. And so what are the consequences if you betray God, which we all have? What are the consequences if you betray God? Same sin, but his authority is infinitely higher. And so when we betray an infinitely authoritative God, the consequences of our sin are not just death, but they are infinite death. Now, here's the problem. And I just said it a second ago. All of us have sinned. All of us have betrayed God. Every one of us in the room. Romans 3.23 says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single solitary one of us in this room has sinned against his perfect holiness and therefore are deserving. We're deserving of his infinite punishment and wrath. You and I earned it. We deserve it. And because of that, not one of us, not a single one of us can just come strolling and walking into the presence of God. We're starting to see why God called this the mercy lid. His mercy lid was this, was a physical, listen to this. His mercy lid was a physical picture of God's willingness. Listen, it was a physical picture of God's willingness to protect sinners against the consequence of encountering God's perfect holiness. That's the first thing he's doing there. He's showing us a physical picture all the way back in the Old Testament. Hey guys, you've earned my infinite wrath, but I'm gonna tell you what I do. I wanna just start showing you a picture of what I'm setting up here, which is there's coming a day where I'm gonna completely forgive you. That's the first thing it does. Shows you a physical picture of God's willingness to protect us from the consequences of our offending an infinite authority. Now, there's a second thing, or second reason God calls the ark or the lid of the ark, the mercy lid. And I want you to hear this. Yes, God's holy. And yes, we are sinful. And, and yes, God's presence um, makes our faces melt off, right? And we die eternally. That's all true. But here's the thing you gotta hear. At the same exact time, God desperately loves us. He desperately loves us. He is the one that creates, we can't, we can't forget that when we're talking about God's wrath. We can't forget that when we talk about us earning the consequences of our sin. He is the one that created us. He's the one that got this whole thing started. And why did he create us? 
He created us so that we would know him. He created us in the garden so that we would be in relationship with him and that we could know him, and that he could know us, and that we can have a loving relationship with our creator. But we chose sin, and sin and death came flooding into the world. And so what God is doing through the mercy seat, what God is doing through the mercy seat, here's the second thing, is not only is he providing a way for there's kind of be this physical covering of his wrath, listen, But through the mercy seat, he's providing a way for his wrath to actually be satisfied. Through the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, God sets forth uh, the steps for his wrath against us to actually be appeased. For his wrath to be taken away from us. And our sins can actually be forgiven and taken from us. Now, that's really, really cool. But again, there's a problem. Um, And by the way, let me say this. On the day of atonement, and so this is how he set this thing up where his wrath could be appeased, he did it through blood. The way that God's wrath could not just have a lid put on it, but actually taken away from us is through blood. And on the day of atonement, what would happen is the high priest would walk into the holy place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And before he would do that, um, he had to kind of pay for the sins of himself until he would do ritual cleansing of his own because he's sinful and he's gonna walk in there. And, and true story, and we found this out, Holly and I, when we went to Israel, we asked some of the scholars there, some of the Jewish scholars said, yeah, this actually happened. But they, they put a rope around that dude's waist as he would walk into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement in case he did something wrong and he walked in the presence of God and he didn't get all clean before he walked in there, dude would just drop dead and so they would be able to pull that sucker out. And that's a true story. And so he would go in there on the day of atonement and they would kill a goat or a bull and that he would take the blood of this sacrifice. That's what we call it, a sacrifice. And he would take the blood of this goat and he would sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat. And so that blood on top of the mercy seat would be a substitute for the death of the people. You and I, we all earned death, but God said, I'll tell you what you do. We'll let something else die in your place and you can sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat and on that day, that will appease my wrath and that can be a substitute for the sin of the people. <clears throat> now, I want you to hear this. <clears throat> that right there is called, that, that there's a term for that action of taking blood and appeasing the wrath of God. It's called propitiation. Propitiation, that's important. We're gonna talk about it at the end of this message very, very quickly. But basically, propitiation means this, that it's the act of appeasing God's wrath through blood. Propitiation. God sees the blood, and his wrath is taken temporarily away, and so propitiation occurs. Now, here was the problem with the sacrificial system. Here was the problem with that form of propitiation it wasn't permanent. It was temporary, okay? The blood of the animal would go on the mercy seat and God's wrath over our sin would be appeased for a little while, but not once and for all. Not once and for all. Um, the blood of the animal um, would appease the wrath of God for the sins that the people had already committed, but what would inevitably happen? Is the day after, the day of the atonement, everybody would get up, And at some point in time, they'd sin again. They'd betray God again. And and, and so the day after the day of atonement, God's wrath towards their sin, because the blood was only temporary, God's wrath because of their sin was rekindled. 
it's important to understand that the blood of bulls and goats could only temporarily take away sin. It could only temporarily offer propitiation or the appeasement of the wrath of God. Don't turn there. I just want you to watch this in Hebrews 10.1 because that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Is he's talking about how the sacrificial system only offered temporary propitiation. In uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1, he says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can, ne- it can never, it can never, he's talking about the law. <clears throat> it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And so the writer of Hebrews, he comes out and he says, look, these sacrifices that keep being made year after year, they cannot make you perfect. They can help you for the day, They can help you for what you've done in the past, but you're gonna sin again. And so the blood of bulls and goats can't make you perfect. And he goes on in verse two. He goes, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? He's like, hey, if these things actually took away your sin completely, at some point in time, you stop killing goats. He says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have the conscience of sins. And in verse three, he says, but in these sacrifices, they're a reminder of sins every year. And so everybody look at me real quick. Everybody look at me. What he just said is that the purpose of the sacrificial system that kept having to, they kept them do over and over and over again every single year and it would appease God for a little while but then they would sin again. He said all in the world that was doing is just reminding them every single solitary year of their need for somebody to step into the picture and heal them of their sin forever. That's what that means. And then he goes on in the last verse. He, he, he says in verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls or, and goats to take away sin. He says it's impossible. Um, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was kind of like buying something on a credit card. You ever bought something on a credit card, something big, <clears throat> maybe like a TV, big screen TV? You walk into Costco, which is from Satan, by the way, I hate Costco, and... Um, I'm, I really, I'm gonna do a whole sermon one day on why I don't like Costco. <coughs> Evil place. And um, it is. And, um, and, and, and you go into Costco and you get a, a big screen TV. And let's say you don't really have the money to buy the big screen TV. So you carry that thing to the front and you, you drop down a credit card. Well, here's the cool thing about the credit card is they'll let you walk out with that, that TV. And you kind of sort of pay for it. But the problem with the credit card, actually they stop you and they check your um, receipt before you walk out of Costco, which is one of the reasons, anyway. But anyway, you walk out of it to make sure, you put the credit card down and they let you take it home. But at the end of the day, even though there was a sort of kind of payment made, the real payment is still waiting. There's still a cost that one day you've got to pay, and that's exactly kind of what's going on here with the sacrificial system, is that the blood of a goat or a bull would offer this temporary satisfaction of God's wrath for our sin that we earned, but it didn't take away our sin. It didn't remove us from our sin. It it, it appeased God temporarily. It offered propitiation temporarily, but the ultimate payment still had to be made. And church, that's brings us to the last purpose of the mercy seat. 
It's why God did this, why he set it up. It's why he put it there. It's, and it's this. And I'm just going to jump right into it. We'll probably talk about this more next week. But the Old Testament mercy seat is ultimately and most importantly a picture of Jesus. It's, it's ultimately and most importantly a picture of Jesus. The mercy seat of, was God's way of, of shouting to us all the way back in Exodus that you are gonna one day need someone to come and pay off your debt. The, the mercy seat was, was God setting up a system that wouldn't work so that one day he would come and, and complete and fulfill the payment of the system through the blood of his son. The mercy seat was God. It was like this big flashing neon sign of God's, God's way of saying, I'm gonna send my son to you. I, I, I'm gonna come here myself and I'm gonna shed my blood and I'm gonna pay the ultimate penalty of your sin once and for all. In church, 2,000 years ago, that's exactly what God did. 2,000 years ago, God came to us. He came to us in the form of, of a baby, the, uh, uh, John tells us that he came and he tabernacled among us. His presence dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. He was born of a virgin, that's important. He was born of a virgin. It means we, he, he didn't share our sin nature. And then he lived 33 years. 33 years he walked the planet he created and, and doing so he walked in perfect obedience to the law. Unlike everybody else in this room, he never sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And then he willingly walked to the cross where he was murdered and, and, the, and the wrath of God and the mercy of God collided at the cross of Jesus and he shed his blood. And once his blood was shed, he said, it is finished. And God looked at the shed blood of Jesus and the finished work of Christ on the cross and God said, I am now completely satisfied. I'm satisfied. That word right there, Propitiation. We'll get there in a second, but watch this. Hebrew chapter nine, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, even though the greater and more perfect tent, Jesus was the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Watch this. <coughs> For he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Watch what it says, thus securing an eternal redemption. The mercy seat is a picture of Christ that when Jesus died and he shed his perfect holy blood that what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us is in that shedding of his blood that he secured for us not a temporary propitiation but Jesus secured for us an eternal propitiation. Through the blood of Christ, God's wrath has been appeased forever. For God so loved the world for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
And that whoever believes into him will not die. You will not receive the consequences of sin that you incurred, but you will receive eternal life. And by the way, that's why we celebrate Christmas. Amen? That's what it's all about. <clears throat> that's why Christmas for us is a celebration. That's why on, on Christmas night, the first one, when, when Jesus was born, the angels threw a party and they start shouting and they gotta go tell somebody and so they find some shepherds and they walk up to the shepherds and say, hey, I bring to you good news of a great joy for today in the city of David. There has been born for you a savior, which is Christ the Lord. He, he's a savior. He's gonna save you, the blood of bulls and goats, all they did was just remind you year after year how you didn't measure up to God's perfect standard, but what Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna change you completely. It's Christmas, it's, it's the day that God came to us <clears throat> to make payment that he demanded of us himself. Have you ever thought about that? God has this payment that he demanded. He had this payment that he set forth Eternal death because of the consequences of sin and God came to us himself and he himself paid the penalty that he demanded. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Christmas is the day that, that God promised us that the payment maker would come. Christmas day is the day that, that, that God promised us would come when the payment maker would come and take the, the, the balance that was still on your credit card of sin and, and pay it all off. But then he wouldn't just stop there. He would say, hey, what I'm gonna do is every single time that person puts anything else on the credit card the rest of your life, we need to let them know that through my blood it is completely and totally already paid for. Christmas is the day that God's promise to us would be fulfilled that all his wrath 33 years later would be poured out on his son, not us. So that when Jesus again said it's finished, God said, I love you forever and I'm pleased with you. Christmas day was the reason that 1 John 2, one through two was written. And John the disciple wrote this and I want you to hear this, we're almost done. Hear this carefully today. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you would not sin. John says, I'm writing this book because I want you to know that as a follower of Christ, you, you should not sin. You should do everything in your power through the power of the Holy Spirit to live in holiness in the way that your heavenly father walked in holiness. You need to do this, you need to, you need to depend every day on the Holy Spirit the way Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit. Because God is gracious, but he's still a God of justice and, and, and he's still the one that had to die for the penalty that, that we incurred. And so I'm, he's, I'm writing this to you today so that you wouldn't sin. But then watch what he says. He says, but if anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the one who never sinned. He's our advocate with our heavenly Father. And look what he says in verse two, this is awesome. He says, he is the propitiation for our sins. Not our sacrifice, 
That's not the propitiation. Not our ability to walk out the door and do better tomorrow. That's not our propitiation. That's not what satisfies the wrath of God. The scripture says that Jesus is our propitiation. The person of Christ is our propitiation. And by the way, that word propitiation, Greek word, hysterion, you know what it means? Literally translated, it means mercy seat. John says, Jesus is your mercy seat. He's the one that once and for all removes the wrath of God for you. And I'll end with this. I I believe on this Christmas season that there's probably some of you in this room that are believers, that are children of God, but you're living your lives like you're living in the Old Testament sacrificial system. That you try your best, but then you sin and you think God's mad at you and or you fail and you think God's wrath's gonna come upon you or you sin and you think God's looking at you and he's displeased with you or, or, or you sin and therefore you walk around carrying the baggage of your guilt and your shame. But what the scripture is teaching us today is that Jesus is your mercy seat. He's your mercy seat. And listen, I'm done. <clears throat> Just in the same way that God, when he was looking down at the Ark of the Covenant and he was looking at the perfect law of God, he had to look through the blood on the mercy seat. And he saw the law through the blood in the same way when he's looking at you. When he's looking at you, he doesn't look and see a person that's broken all these laws. If you are in Christ Jesus, he sees you through the blood of his son. And all he sees is his child, his son, his daughter, whose sin has been completely removed from them. This Christmas, let it be a reminder to you that through the blood of Jesus Christ, he has paid for all of your sin. Not in part, but the whole. It was nailed to the cross, and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, for he's our mercy seat. Let's pray. There's nothing in the world like this, God. That's why I believe this with all my heart. No, no, no man made this up. Every other religion in the whole world is a story of men working and trying and sacrificing to get right in your sight, but the gospel is a story of you coming to us and dying and making us right yourself. Not in our own power, but in yours. Father, I pray today that if there's anybody in this room that has never trusted in the blood of Jesus to take away their sin, that right now in the best way they know how they would do that. For those of us that are here, who are believers, I pray that we would remember that we are completely clean today that you don't see our sin, you removed it as far as the east is from the west because Jesus was our mercy seat. And God, I pray that our worship today would be a response to that. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together.